a few weeks, after all, from Resurrection Sunday, aren't we? And for a Christian, and for the church, it's, it's all about Easter. Resurrection is our Super Bowl Sunday. It's where we're heading all year. The fact that Jesus lives is what seals the deal, and it's what validates everything that he said and everything that he did. Easter is why we do what we do. Resurrection Sunday is the reason that you and I have hope beyond the moment. Paul spoke well in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, when he said, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable, it says in some versions, most miserable in others. If there is no resurrection, then we're without hope. Without the resurrection, we're doomed and, and we're destined for an eternity apart from God. And we're void of all the promises that have been made in Christ. But the good news is there is a resurrection Sunday. We do celebrate Easter morning. Jesus does live and reign. And because he lives, we also live. But in order to get to the empty tomb, you have to pass by a hill called Calvary. Before Jesus could rise from the dead, he had to die on a cross. You can't empty the tomb unless it's been occupied first. There is no Easter without Good Friday. And so in the last few weeks, working our way through the Lenten season, We've looked at seven words of love. The seven phrases that Jesus uttered from the cross. We started, week number one was, was Father forgive them for they know not what they do. They were the hardest words. Part two was today you'll be with me in paradise. Those were words of hope. Part three were selfless words. It was Jesus entrusting his mother to the apostle John. Woman, behold your son. And to John, he said, behold your mother. Next were the desperate words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In part five were the human words of Jesus as he uttered the phrase, I thirst. Last week, it was the culmination of the work he came to do and the dramatic words of life, it is finished. And today, the final part of the series, the message is called Words of Transition. And it really goes back to the very beginning of it all. In the beginning, the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth. And then he made man. And in Genesis 2, verse 7, it says the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I, I find the detail in that verse fascinating. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that thing that he had fashioned and formed out of the ground became a living soul. Fast forward down the eons of time and we find Jesus hanging on a cross. And with his final breath, we hear the last of our seven words of love. They are words of transition. 
And they're found in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. It says, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. Here we get a confirmation of dualism. Dualism is the belief that there are, there's both a material aspect and a spiritual aspect to the universe. And within this, I believe, we have an amazing opportunity to look at the threefold nature of man. The fourth most common element in the universe is carbon. As I understand it, and I don't, all life forms are carbon-based. No other element can form the kind and variety of chemical bonds that, that carbon can. Scientists know of more than a million carbon-based compounds, many of which are essential for life. It makes me wonder if carbon has something to do with the soul. The soul, you see, is the principle of life. Even your dog has a soul. The soul is what wags his tail. The soul animates the body. When the dog dies, his soul departs, and his tail wags no more. I believe human beings have a threefold nature. In other words, we have three parts to our being. Uh, we have a diagram that we'll put up here on the screen. It's, that same diagram is on the back of your sermon notes in your program that you received. There's, there's a, a, a thing of sermon notes that some people like to use. On the back of that is the same diagram, so you can take it home with you. Threefold nature of man. One part of our being, the most tangible part, is the body. The body is the part that interacts with the physical world. Another part is the spirit. That's the part of your be being that corresponds with God. So what is the soul? The soul is your personhood. The soul is who you are. I believe the soul is comprised of five sense faculties, just as your physical body is comprised of five sense faculties. The soul is made up of your imagination, reason, affection, memory, and conscience. Our threefold nature, then, is made up of the part of us that's in contact with the world, that's your body, the part that corresponds with God, that's your spirit, and between those two, the spirit and the body, lies our soul. And this is where the war rages. The soul is our battleground. In the Middle East, in, in Bible times, there was a place known as Shephela. It was a low, hilly country located between Israel and what we know as Gaza today, but was what was then Philistia. And whoever controlled this middle ground, this place known as Shephela, had a distinct military advantage. If the Israelites controlled Shephela, they would push the Philistines back. 
If the Philistines moved into Shephelah, they would be in a position to impose their will upon Israel. In, in my mind, Shephelah correlates to the soul. The soul is the middle ground that lies between the body, the part of us that corresponds with the world, and the spirit, which is the part of our being that interacts with God. Our body is the carnal, fleshly aspect to our being. It's the boots-on-the-ground aspect to our existence. The spirit of man is the connection between the believer and the spirit of the living God. Listen to Romans 8.16. It says, the spirit itself, the, now it, that's capital S, the spirit itself, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit, small s, that we are the children of God. But between the body, the boots on the ground part, and the core of our being, the spirit that interacts with God, lies the soul. The soul is, is who you are. And each of the sense faculties we mention are battlegrounds within our soul of good and evil. They're the territory where we are pulled and drawn and influenced and persuaded. Think about it. If the enemy knows he can influence your reason or he can torment your memory, if he can get your imagination to venture into places it shouldn't, if he can either sear your conscience or make it hypersensitive, if he can get you to detach your affection from God, you will soon attach your affection to something else. The flip side is also true. If God can gain influence in your affections, in your reason, if you're in your conscience, in your memory, in your imagination, then the sky is the limit. The soul sold out to Jesus is unstoppable. Amen. Today we'll look briefly at each of these sense faculties of the soul. And I challenge you to think about how they are battlegrounds in your life and how we can make sure we allow God to have the victory in each of the dominions of our soul. Let's start with imagination. This is the, the faculty or the place where we form new ideas, images or concepts of objects not present to the senses. This is where they're seen. The imagination is where your creative power comes from. It's the part of the mind that imagines and dreams. Put the imagination, put the imagination under the influence of the Spirit of God and you get vision for the future. You get evangelistic ideas. You get creative thoughts and ministry dreams. The imagination is what takes the lid off. It's the imagination that dreams and imagines that what at this point is impossible. It's the imagination that moves us into the realm of miracles. It's the imagination that unlocks the impossible. Put imagination 
into the hands of the Spirit. And amazing things can happen as we unleash the power of God within the imagination of a man or a woman that's sold out to Jesus. Come on, church. Don't let your imagination fall into the wrong hands. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above, above all that we're able to ask or, or think or as some versions say, imagine according to the power that works in us. If the enemy gets a hold of our imagination, however, we quickly and decisively lose ground. If demons limit our dreams, squelch our vision, and twist our thoughts, we are in trouble. And the church is in trouble. In Genesis 6-5, we see a people who have lost their imagination to the enemy. It says the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Satan had gained ground in the sense faculty of the imagination, and the results were catastrophic. Conscience is another battleground of good and evil. The enemy wants you to grow numb to the voice of conscience. It's one of the sense faculties of your soul. The mind is an amazing thing, isn't it? We can actually train our mind to ignore what we deem to be useless information. Okay? For example, if you're looking down the street, your mind will sift through information and it will, for example, filter out information like the colors and the makes of all the cars that you see go by. You have deemed it to be cluttered. So the mind does you the favor of discarding it into the trash container before it ever arrives at the desk of your consciousness. That's not a bad analogy, is it? Every once in a while, I impress myself. And so I stop there for a dramatic pause. But beware... That can happen to that still, small voice of God, too. Ignore it enough, and you'll stop hearing it. 1 Timothy 4.2 warns us of a people having their conscience seared with a hot iron, as though it's hardened over, as though it's calloused over, as though it's crusted over. On the other hand, there are people who are hypersensitive to their conscience and, and they torment themselves over every little thing. Always remember this. The devil doesn't care which ditch he pushes you into. He'll take you whatever way you're leaning. So some people have a hypersensitive conscience. Romans 14.5 says this. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Romans 14 is the chapter on gray areas. Fascinating chapter. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So if it's not contrary to the word of God, if you are not being a stumbling block to somebody else, and if the spirit of God gives you the okay, go for it. 
Knock yourself out. Don't let the enemy torment you. Just make sure those other questions have been settled first. Another sense faculty of the soul is the memory. The memory wins a lot of battles. The, the devil wins a lot of battles here, doesn't he? In, in the memory. We either suppress what happened in our past and it comes out sideways, or we dwell in the muck and in the mire of our formative years and we never get past the trauma that happened to us or perhaps a bad decision that we made somewhere along the line. We, we must gain victory in the battleground of the memory. We may have to identify and debreed the wound, but we do not have to live there and it doesn't have to define us. People have overcome horrendous things. People have overcome horrendous things and gone on to live victorious lives. You can too. Another sense faculty of our soul is reason. Reason is the part of our soul that we use to discover, gather, and formulate information that we use to arrive at conclusions. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. I love that. I believe, however, that this is an underdeveloped area in the Christian soul. Sadly, we've withdrawn ourselves from the world of reason. We have surrendered reason to the secular intelligentsia. We've assumed they know more. But the reality is this. Every three-year-old in our children's wing that can recite Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, already knows more than every professor of evolution at any college campus in the country. Because when they knew God, Romans says, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. But we've surrendered the sense faculty of reason. We are notoriously poor. Christians are notoriously poor at apologetics. We're big on emotion. And we may even know the Bible, but we could not hold our own in a debate to save our lives. The good news is there are tools available to help us grow in our faith and to be able to reason the Bible out and to articulate it in a winsome and coherent manner. And I put three names in your notes. Ravi Zacharias, Frank Turek, and Dennis Prager. Now, Dennis Prager isn't even a Christian. Dennis Prager is Jewish. But he will teach you how to think. He will teach you how to reason out arguments. And he will help you articulate it in an intelligent and coherent way. Ravi Zacharias and Frank Turek, uh, well, all three of these guys, they go to colleges, and they give presentations, and then they take questions and answers from all the unsaved college students, all the 
professing atheists and, and people that believe in other religions or whatever, they take all the questions. They take them as they come. You can watch them on YouTube. You can buy their books. Uh, there's Prager University that you can subscribe to online for free. Uh, I encourage you in all of those areas because reason is an underdeveloped sense faculty in the Christian soul. We need to be able to hold our own. We have the best argument to make. But we haven't invested in, in the area of reason. It's vitally important. If we lose in the area of reason, we lose an entire generation at a time. I, I can't exhort you enough to learn how to articulate your faith. I know it's in here, but we have to become better at articulating it. We don't have to apologize for what we believe. We just have to learn how to articulate it. Another background, another sense faculty of our soul is affection. We are to love God and love our neighbor, and Jesus even teaches us to love our enemies. That's, that's hard work, and it doesn't come naturally. The devil takes us in a much more natural direction. The devil promotes selfishness and narcissism. It becomes all about me. He perverts affection. He twists it into something it was never meant to be, and we wind up in the realm of pornography or homosexuality or materialism or any uh, of a host of other perversions. And when that happens, the devil gains ground in the realm of our soul that can eventually impact our spirit and our relationship with God. Imagination, conscience, memory, reason, and affection. These are the battlegrounds of good and evil within the soul of every man, woman, and child. And I believe this is where our salvation is won or lost. So what does the Bible mean when it says Jesus gave up the ghost? It speaks of the essence of death. Luke 23, 46 again says, when, when Jesus cried with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. It's, it, it, it seems to me it's the reverse process of Genesis 2, 7, where God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And now that final breath is leaving the body. What does it mean to die? What's the actual process of death? We've been taught to think one of two ways. One is the idea that when we die, we go out of existence, right? There's just, you're out of existence. Eternal nothingness. The other belief is that we all go to a better place. Now, I'm left to assume that that's a reference to heaven. But both of these viewpoints are wrong, dead wrong. In reality, death is separation. These are words of transition. When you go to a funeral, we see the dead body, and we instantly and we instinctively know that's not the person. The person 
is not there. The body is there, but we know, even if you're not a Christian, there's something in you that knows that's not the person. The soul is your personhood. The soul is who you are, and at death your soul has separated, detached, departed from your body. This is the definition of physical death. The soul and the spirit depart, separate from the body. That's physical death. For the believer at death, the soul is united with God. 2 Corinthians 5 Beginning in verse 6 says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, so while I, my soul, my personhood, is at home in the body, I am absent from the Lord. The verse goes on, verse 8, 2 Corinthians 5. But we are also confident, willing rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So when I, me, my personhood, my soul, my five sense faculties, reason, imagination, conscience, affection, and memory, when that leaves my body, I will be in the presence of the Lord. When believers die, they go to heaven to await the judgment seat of Christ, which is a judgment of reward. It's not a judgment of of heaven and hell, it's a judgment of reward. This is for believers. It's, it's when believers will receive reward for everything they did for the sake of the kingdom. Every work that has eternal value will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Take heart, church. Every time you witness, every time you give, every time you share the gospel, every act of kindness that's designed to be winsome, will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. When unbelievers die, they go to a place called Hades to await sentencing at the great white throne judgment where they will experience what the Bible calls the second death. It speaks of spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation to. Spiritual death is separation from God. Jesus, the Bible says, gave up the ghost. There was a separation of his soul and his body. To Jesus, death simply meant he was, he was going home. When he shouted, it is finished, he pronounced his victory to the world. When he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he was addressing himself, not to the world, but to the world to come. They were words of transition. He was leaving this world with all of its sin and suffering and heartache and pain. He was, he was a pilgrim on the threshold of his father's house. He was going the way that every believer will one day go. His body to the grave, his soul to heaven. Words of transition. But the reality is, we're all born in sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, so that all have sinned. We are all born in sin. 
That diagram that you have on the back of your notes, the, the, the core of your being, the spirit, when you're born, you're born in sin. That spirit is dormant. In order to enter into the presence of God, we must make a decision by the act of our will to believe the gospel, to repent of our sin, and to receive Christ. The will, again, look at that diagram. There's one doorway into the Spirit, and the will stands guard at the door. But when we make that choice, an amazing thing happens. When we make the decision to, to receive Jesus by an act of our will, an amazing thing happens. Our spirit is regenerated. It, it comes to life like a, like a flower in the spring rain. It's what the Bible refers to in John chapter 3 and verse 3 as being born again. You can do that today. And it's not that you believe. The devil believes. In fact, have you ever thought about this? The devil is perfectly orthodox in what he believes. It's not, it's not really about the fact that you believe. It's really about trust. Do you trust Jesus? And it's not that you've modified your behavior either. It's not that you've gone from somewhat unacceptable to somewhat acceptable, which is kind of the best we can hope for. That describes a Pharisee, not a born-again Christian. The question is, do you trust Jesus? Is he your hope of salvation? Your righteousness isn't enough. Your goodness isn't enough. Your charity, it's not enough. Your kindness, your generosity, your church attendance, your good works, it's not enough. Make sure that you know Jesus. Make sure that all of your trust is placed in him. He is your only We're going to open up the altars. We have lots of time left. We saved worship for the end. And we'll dismiss you at our usual time. But I want you, in this time that remains, to be able to just lose yourself in worship and contemplate the things that we've talked about. If you've never, if you've never trusted Jesus for your salvation, today's the day. And then for those of you that do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Please contemplate those five battlegrounds, those five sense faculties in your spirit. Make sure that you're giving Jesus every opportunity. You're giving the Holy Spirit every opportunity to win those battlegrounds. And so I want to open the altars. My hope and my prayer is that you just, you just flood to the front. As soon as the music starts playing, you just make your way to the front. You just kneel down and you... You lay on the floor before God and you just give it all to Him. You say, God, I want to surrender my imagination, my conscience, my memory, my affections, my reason. I want to give it all to you. 
want you to experience everything that he has for you. And I believe that happens at the altar. And if you're limited mobility-wise, man, get somebody to help you. Come to the altar. Come to the altar. Come to the altar. Lord, I pray that you'd move in our midst this morning, this last part of this series that has forced me again to, to look at the cross, to remember the cross. Lord, I pray that you would bring it back to our consciousness. And we might experience you again for the first time. Lord, I pray that as we open the altars, Lord, that you'll stir the hearts of every believer and of those that are seeking to come to the altar. In Jesus' name.